Hey guys, welcome to another World Audiobooks. I was reading something the other day that said that your intro should be less than 30 seconds unless you have something really good to say, and uh, I don't, so it's going to be less than 30 seconds. But remember, we're coming to the end of Tarzan, so I want to hear what book do you want to hear next, so let me know. Contact information is in the show notes. So now, without further ado, I give you Tarzan. Chapter 23 Brother Men When Dale not regained consciousness, he found himself lying upon a bed of soft ferns and grasses, beneath a little A-shaped shelter of boughs. At his feet, an opening looked out upon a green sward, and, at a little distance beyond, was the dense wall of jungle and forest. He was very lame and sore and weak, and as full consciousness returned, he felt the sharp torture of many cruel wounds and the dull aching of every bone and muscle in his body as a result of the hideous beating he had received. Even the turning of his head caused him such excruciating agony that he lay still with closed eyes for a long time. He tried to piece out the details of his adventure prior to the time he lost consciousness to see if they would explain his present whereabouts. He wondered if he were among friends or foes. At length, he recollected the whole hideous scene at the stake, and finally recalled the strange white figure in whose arms he sunk into oblivion. Dionot wondered what fate lay in store for him now. He could neither see nor hear any signs of life about him. The incessant hum of the jungle, the rustling of millions of leaves, the buzz of insects, the voices of the birds and monkeys, seemed to blend into a strangely soothing purr, as though he lay apart, far from the myriad life whose sounds came to him only as a blurred echo. At length, he fell into a quiet slumber, nor did he awake again until afternoon. Once more, he experienced a strange sense of utter bewilderment that had marked his earlier awakening, but soon he recalled the recent past, and looking through the opening at his feet, he saw the figure of a man squatting upon his haunches. The broad, muscular back was turned toward him, but, tanned though it was, Dionot saw that it was the back of a white man, and he thanked God. The Frenchman called faintly. The man turned, and, rising, came toward the shelter. His face was very handsome, the handsomest, thought Dionot, that he had ever seen. Stooping, he crawled into the shelter beside the wounded officer and placed a cool hand upon his forehead. Dionot spoke to him in French, but the man only shook his head. Sadly, it seemed to the Frenchman. Then Dionot tried English, but still the man shook his head. Italian, Spanish, and German brought similar discouragement. Dionot knew a few words of Norwegian, Russian, Greek, and also had a smattering of the language of one of the West Coast Negro tribes. The man denied them all. After examining Dionot's wounds, the man left the shelter and disappeared. In half an hour, he was back with fruit and a hollow gourd-like vegetable filled with water. Dionot drank and ate a little. He was surprised that he had no fever. Again, he tried to converse with this strange nurse, but the attempt was useless. Suddenly, the man hastened from the shelter, only to return a few minutes later with several pieces of bark and, wonder of wonders, a lead pencil. Squatting beside Dionot, he wrote for a minute on the smooth inner surface of the bark. Then he handed it to the Frenchman. Dionot was astonished to see, in plain print-like characters, a message in English. I am Tarzan of the Apes. Who are you? Can you read this language? Dionot seized the pencil. Then he stopped. This strange man wrote English. Evidently he was an Englishman. Yes! said Dionot. I read English. I speak it also. Now we may talk. First let me thank you for all that you have done for me. The man only shook his head and pointed to the pencil in the park. Mon Dieu! cried Dionot. 
If you are English, why is it then that you cannot speak English? And then, in a flash, it came to him. The man was a mute, possibly a deaf mute. So, Dernot wrote a message on the bark in English. I am Paul Dernot, lieutenant of the Navy of France. I thank you for what you have done for me. You have saved my life, and all that I have is yours. May I ask how it is that one who writes English does not speak it? Tarzan's reply filled Dernot with still greater wonder. I speak only the language of my tribe, the great apes who were Kerchaks, and a little of the language of Tantor the elephant, and Numa the lion, and of the other folks of the jungle I understand. With a human being I have never spoken, except once with Jane Porter, by signs. This is the first time I have spoken with another of my kind through written words. Dernot was mystified. It seemed incredible that there lived upon earth a full-grown man who had never spoken with a fellow man, and still more preposterous that such a one could read and write. He looked again at Tarzan's message, except once with Jane Porter. That was the American girl who had been carried into the jungle by a gorilla. A sudden light commenced to dawn upon Dernot. This, then, was the gorilla. He seized the pencil and wrote, Where is Jane Porter? Tarzan replied below, back with her people in the cabin of Tarzan of the Apes. She is not dead then? Where was she? What happened to her? She is not dead. She was taken by Turkaz to be his wife, but Tarzan of the Apes took her away from Turkaz and killed him before he could harm her. None in all the jungle may face Tarzan of the Apes in battle and live. I am Tarzan of the Apes, mighty fighter. Dionot wrote, I am glad she is safe. It pains me to write. I will rest a while. And then Tarzan. Yes, rest. When you are well, I shall take you back to your people. For many days, Dionot lay upon his bed of salt ferns. The second day, a fever had come, and Dionot thought that it meant infection, and he knew that he would die. An idea came to him. He wondered why he had not thought of it before. He called Tarzan, and indicated by signs that he would write, and when Tarzan had fetched the bark and pencil, Dernot wrote, "'Can you go to my people and lead them here? I will write a message that you may take to them, and they will follow you.' Tarzan shook his head, and, taking the bark, wrote, "'I had thought of that the first day, but I dared not. The great apes come often to this spot, and if they found you here, wounded and alone, they would kill you.' Dernot turned on his side and closed his eyes. He did not wish to die, but he felt that he was going, for the fever was mounting higher and higher. That night, he lost consciousness. For three days he was in delirium, and Tarzan sat beside him and bathed his head and hands and washed his wounds. On the fourth day, the fever broke as suddenly as it had come, but it left Dionot a shadow of his former self, and very weak. Tarzan had to lift him that he might drink from the gourd. The fever had not been the result of infection, as Dionot thought, but one of those that commonly attacks whites in the jungle of Africa, and either kill or leave them as suddenly as Dionot had left him. Two days later, Dionot was tottering about the amphitheatre, Tarzan's strong arms about him to keep him from falling. They sat beneath the shade of a great tree, and Tarzan found some smooth bark that they might converse. Dionot wrote the first message. What can I do to repay you for all that you have done for me? And Tarzan in reply. Teach me to speak the language of men. 
And so, Deonard commenced at once, pointing out familiar objects and repeating their names in French, for he thought that it would be easier to teach this man his own language, since he understood it himself best of all. It meant nothing to Tarzan, of course, for he could not tell one language from another. So, when he pointed to the word man which he had printed upon a piece of bark, he learned from Deonard that it was pronounced Homé, and in the same way he was taught to pronounce ape, singe, and tree, abre. He was a most eager student, and in two more days had mastered so much French that he could speak little sentences such as, that is a tree, this is grass, I am hungry, and the like, but Deonard found that it was difficult to teach him the French construction upon a foundation of English. The Frenchman wrote little lessons for him in English, and had Tarzan repeat them in French, but as a literal translation was usually very poor French, Tarzan was often confused. Deonard realized now that he had made a mistake, but it seemed too late to go back and do it all over again, and force Tarzan to unlearn all that he had learned, especially when they were rapidly approaching a point where they would be able to converse. On the third day after the fever broke, Tarzan wrote a message asking Deonard if he felt strong enough to be carried back to the cabin. Deonard, only too willing to attempt the journey, wrote, "'But you cannot carry me all the distance through this tangled forest?' Tarzan laughed. Masui, he said, and Deonod laughed aloud to hear the phrase that he used so often glide from Tarzan's tongue. So they set out, Deonod marveling, as had Clayton and Jane, at the wondrous strength and agility of the ape-man. Mid-afternoon brought them to the clearing, and as Tarzan dropped to the earth from the branches of the last tree, his heart leaped and bounded against his ribs in anticipation of seeing Jane so soon again. No one was in sight outside the cabin, and Deonot was perplexed to note that neither the cruiser nor the arrow was at anchor in the bay. An atmosphere of loneliness pervaded the spot which caught suddenly at both men as they strode toward the cabin. Neither spoke, yet both knew before they opened the closed door what they would find beyond. Tarzan lifted the latch and pushed the great door in upon its wooden hinges. It was as they had feared. The cabin was deserted. The men turned and looked at one another. Deonod knew that his people thought him dead, but Tarzan thought only of the woman who had kissed him in love and now had fled from him while he was serving one of her people. A great bitterness rose in his heart. He would go away, far into the jungle, and join his tribe. Never would he see one of his own kind again, nor could he bear the thought of returning to the cabin. He would leave that forever behind him with the great hopes he had nursed there on finding his own race and becoming a man among men. And the Frenchman? Deonod? What of him? He could get along as Tarzan had. Tarzan did not want to see him more. He wanted to get away from everything that might remind him of Jane. As Tarzan stood upon the threshold brooding, Deonot entered the cabin. Many comforts he saw that had been left behind. He recognized numerous articles from the cruiser, a camp oven, some kitchen utensils, a rifle and many rounds of ammunition, canned food, blankets, two chairs and a cot, and several books and periodicals, mostly American. They must be returning thought Deonot. He walked over to the table that John Clayton had built so many years before to serve as a desk, and on it he saw two notes addressed to Tarzan of the apes. One was in a strong masculine hand and was unsealed. The other, in a woman's hand, was sealed. "'Here are two messages for you, Tarzan,' cried Deonot, turning toward the door. But his companion was not there. Deonot walked to the door and looked out. Tarzan was nowhere in sight. He called aloud, but there was no response." "'Mon Dieu!' exclaimed Deonot. "'He has left me. I feel it. He has gone back into his jungle and left me here alone.' 
And then he remembered the look on Tarzan's face when they had discovered that the cabin was empty, such a look as the hunter sees in the eyes of the wounded deer he has wantonly brought down. The man had been hard hit, Dale not realize it now. But why? He could not understand. The Frenchman looked about him. The loneliness and the horror of the place commenced to get on his nerves, already weakened by the ordeal of suffering and sickness he had passed through. To be left here alone, beside this awful jungle, never to hear a human voice or see a human face, in constant dread of savage beasts and more terrible savage men, a prey to solitude and hopelessness. It was awful. And far to the east, Tarzan of the Apes was speeding through the middle terrace back to his tribe. Never had he travelled with such reckless speed. He felt that he was running away from himself, that by hurtling through the forest like a frightened squirrel, he was escaping from his own thoughts. But, no matter how fast he went, he found them always with him. He passed above the sinuous body of Sabor, the lioness, going the opposite direction. Toward the cabin, thought Tarzan. What could Dayanot do against Sabor? Or if Bulgani, the gorilla, should come upon him, or Numa, the lion, or cruel Sheeta. Tarzan paused in his flight. "'What are you, Tarzan?' he asked aloud. "'An ape, or a man? "'If you are an ape, you will do as the apes do. "'Leave one of your kind to die in the jungle "'if it suited your whim to go elsewhere. "'If you are a man, you will return to protect your kind. "'You will not run away from your own people "'because one of them has run away from you.' Dionor closed the cabin door. He was very nervous. Even brave men, and Dayonot was a brave man, are sometimes frightened by solitude. He loaded one of the rifles and placed it within easy reach. Then he went to the desk and took up the unsealed letter addressed to Tarzan. Possibly it contained word that his people had but left the beach temporarily. He felt that it would be no breach of ethics to read this letter, so he took the enclosure from the envelope and read. To Tarzan of the Apes we thank you for the use of your cabin, and are sorry that you did not permit us the pleasure of seeing and thanking you in person. We have harmed nothing, but have left many things for you which may add to your comfort and safety here in your lonely home. If you know the strange white man who saved our lives so many times and brought us food, and if you can converse with him, thank him also for his kindness. We say that within the hour, never to return, but we wish you and that other jungle friend to know that we shall always thank you for what you did for strangers on your shore— and that we should have done infinitely more to reward you both had you given us the opportunity. Very respectfully, William Cecil Clayton. Never do return, muttered Dalnot, and threw himself face down upon the cot. An hour later, he started up listening. Something was at the door, trying to enter. Dalnot reached for the loaded rifle and placed it to his shoulder. Dusk was falling, and the interior of the cabin was very dark, but the man could see the latch moving from its place. He felt his hair rising upon his scalp. Gently, the door opened until a thin crack showed something standing just beyond. Dionot sighted along the blue barrel at the crack of the door, and then he pulled the trigger.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Chapter 24 Lost Treasure When the expedition returned, following their fruitless endeavour to succour Deonault, Captain Dufresnay was anxious to steam away as quickly as possible, and all save Jane had acquiesced. No, she said determinedly. I shall not go, nor should you, for there are two friends in that jungle who will come out of it some day expecting to find us awaiting them. Your officer, Captain Dufresnay, is one of them, and the forest man who has saved the lives of every member of my father's party is the other. He left me at the edge of the jungle two days ago to hasten to the aid of my father and Mr. Clayton, as he thought, and he has stayed to rescue Lieutenant Dalenot. Of that you may be sure. Had he been too late to be of service to the lieutenant, he would have been back before now. The fact that he is not back is sufficient proof to me that he is delayed because Lieutenant Dalenot is wounded, or he has had to follow his captor further than the village which your sailors attacked. But poor Dalenot's uniform and all his belongings were found in that village, Miss Porter, argued the captain. And the natives showed great excitement when questioned as to the white man's fate. Yes, Captain, but they did not admit that he was dead, and as for his clothes and accoutrements being in their possession, why, more civilized people than these poor savage negroes strip their prisoners of every article of value, whether they intend killing them or not. Even the soldiers of my own dear South looted not only the living, but the dead. It is strong circumstantial evidence, I will admit, but it is not positive proof. Possibly your forest man himself was captured or killed by the savages. "'suggested Captain Dufresnay. "'The girl laughed. "'You do not know him,' she replied, "'a little thrill of pride setting her nerves a tingle "'at the thought that she spoke of her own. "'I admit you would be worth waiting for, this superman of yours,' "'laughed the captain. "'I most certainly should like to see him.' "'Then wait for him, my dear captain,' urged the girl, "'for I intend doing so.' The Frenchman would have been a very much surprised man could he have interpreted the true meaning of the girl's words. They had been walking from the beach toward the cabin as they talked, and now they joined a little group sitting on camp stools in the shade of a great tree beside the cabin. Professor Porter was there, and Mr. Philander and Clayton, with Lieutenant Carpentier and two of his brother officers, while Esmeralda hovered in the background, ever and anon venturing opinions and comments with the freedom of an old, much-indulged family servant. The officers arose and saluted as their superior approached, and Clayton surrendered his capstool to Jane. "'We were just discussing poor Paul's fate,' said Captain Dufresnay. "'Miss Porter insists that we have no absolute proof of his death. Nor have we. And on the other hand, she maintains that the continued absence of your omnipotent jungle friend indicates that they are not still in need of his services, either because he is wounded or still a prisoner in the more distant native village. It has been suggested, ventured Lieutenant Carpentier, 
that the wild man may have been a member of the tribe of blacks who attacked our party, that he was hastening to aid them, his own people. Jane shot a quick glance at Clayton. It seems vastly more reasonable, said Professor Porter. I do not agree with you, objected Mr. Philander. He had ample opportunity to harm us himself, or to lead his people against us. Instead, during our long residence here, he has been uniformly consistent in his role of protector and provider. That is true, interjected Clayton. Yet we must not overlook the fact that except for himself, the only human beings within hundreds of miles are savage cannibals. He was armed precisely as they are, which indicates that he has maintained relations of some nature with them, and the fact that he is but one against possibly thousands suggests that these relations could scarcely have been other than friendly. It seems improbable that he is not connected with them, remarked the captain, possibly a member of this tribe. Otherwise, added another of the officers, how could he have lived a sufficient length of time among the savage denizens of the jungle, brute and human, to have become proficient in woodcraft or in the use of African weapons? You are judging him according to your own standards, gentlemen, said Jane. An ordinary white man, such as any of you, pardon me, I do not mean just that, rather a white man above the ordinary in physique and intelligence could never, I grant you, have lived a year alone and naked in this tropical jungle, but this man not only surpasses the average white man in strength and agility, but as far transcends our trained athletes and strongmen as they surpass a day-old babe, and his courage and ferocity in battle are those of the wild beast. He has only won a loyal champion, Miss Porter, said Captain Dufronet, laughing. I am sure that there have been none of us here, but would willingly face death a hundred times, in his most terrifying form, to deserve the tributes of even one half so loyal, or so beautiful. You would not wonder that I defend him, said the girl. Could you have seen him as I saw him, battling in my behalf with that huge hairy brute? Could you have seen him charge the monster as a bull might charge a grizzly, absolutely without sign of fear or hesitation? You would have believed him more than human. Could you have seen those mighty muscles knotting under the brown skin? Could you have seen them force back those awful fangs? You, too, would have thought him invincible. And could you have seen the chivalrous treatment which he accorded a strange girl of a strange race? You would feel the same absolute confidence in him that I feel. You have won my suit, my fair pleader, cried the captain. This court finds the defendant not guilty, and the cruiser shall wait a few more days longer that he may have an opportunity to come and thank the divine portier. For the Lord's sake, honey, cried Esmeralda, you don't mean to tell me that you're going to stay right here in this land of carnivable animals when you got all the opportunity to escapade on the boat? Don't you tell me that, honey. Why, Esmeralda, you should be ashamed of yourself, cried Jane. Is this any way to show your gratitude to the man who saved your life twice? Well, Miss Jane, that all just as you say, but that there forest man never did save us to stay here. He done save us so we could get away from here. I expect he'd be mighty peevish when he find we ain't got no more sense than to stay right here after he done give us a chance to give away. I hope I'd never have to sleep in this here geological garden another night and listen to all them lonesome noises that come out of the jungle after dark. I don't blame you a bit, Esmeralda, said Clayton. 
and you certainly did hit it right off when you called them lonesome noises. I never have been able to find the right word for them, but that's it. Don't you know, lonesome noises. You and Esmeralda had better go and live on the cruiser, said Jane in fine scorn. What would you think if you had to live all your life in the jungle, as our forest man has done? I'm afraid I'd be a blooming bounder as a wild man, laughed Clayton ruefully. Those noises at night make the hair on my head bristle. I suppose that I should be ashamed to admit it, but it's the truth. I do not know about that, said Lieutenant Carpentier. I never thought much of fear, and that sort of thing. Never tried to determine whether I was a coward or a brave man. But the other night, as we lay in the jungle there, after poor Dionot was taken, and those jungle noises rose and fell around us, I began to think that I was a coward indeed. It was not the roaring and growling of the big beast that affected me so much as it was these stealthy noises, the ones that you heard suddenly close by, and then listened vainly for a repetition of the unaccountable sounds as of a great body moving almost noiselessly, and the knowledge that you did not know how close it was, or whether it was creeping closer after you ceased to hear it. It was those noises, and the eyes. Mon Dieu, I shall see them in the dark forever. The eyes that you see, and those that you don't see but feel, ah, uh, they are the worst. All was silent for a moment, and then Jane spoke. And he is out there, she said in an awe-hushed whisper. Those eyes will be glaring at him tonight, and at your comrade, Lieutenant Dionot. Can you leave them, gentlemen, without at least rendering them the passive succour which remaining here a few days longer might ensure them? "'Tut, tut, child,' said Professor Porter. "'Captain Dufronet is willing to remain, and for my part I'm perfectly willing, perfectly willing, as I always have been to humour your childish whims.' "'We can utilise the morrow in recovering the chest, Professor,' suggested Mr. Philander. "'Quite so, Mr. Philander. I'd almost forgotten the treasure,' exclaimed Professor Porter. Possibly we can borrow some men from Captain Dufresnay to assist us, and one of the prisoners to point out the location of the chest. Most assuredly, my dear Professor, we are all yours to command, said the captain. And so it was arranged that on the next day, Lieutenant Carpentier was to take a detail of ten men, and one of the mutineers of the Arrow as a guide, and unearth the treasure, and that the cruiser would remain for a full week in the little harbour. At the end of that time, it was to be assumed that Dionot was truly dead, and that the forest man would not return while they remained. Then, the two vessels were to leave with all the party. Professor Porter did not accompany the treasure-seekers on the following day, but when he saw them returning empty-handed toward noon, he hastened forward to meet them. His usual preoccupied indifference entirely vanished, and in its place, a nervous and excited manner. "'Who is the treasure?' he cried to Clayton, while yet a hundred feet separated them. Clayton shook his head. "'Gone,' he said as he neared the professor. "'Gone? It cannot be. You could have taken it,' cried Professor Porter. "'God only knows, Professor,' replied Clayton. "'We might have thought the fellow who guided us was lying about the location, "'but his surprise and consternation in finding no chest beneath the body of the murdered snipes "'were too real to be feigned, and then our spade showed us that something had been buried beneath the corpse, "'for a hole had been there, and had been filled with loose earth.' "'But who could have taken it?' repeated Professor Porter. "'Suspicion must naturally fall on the men of the cruiser,' said Lieutenant Carpentier. 
But for the fact that Sub-Lieutenant Javier's here assures me that no men have had shore leave, that none has been on the shore since we anchored here, except under command of an officer. I do not know that you would suspect our men, but I am glad that there is now no chance of suspicion to fall on them. He concluded. It would never have occurred to me to suspect the men to whom we owe so much, replied Professor Porter graciously. I would as soon suspect my dear Clayton here, or Mr. Fernanda. The Frenchman smiled, both officers and sailors. It was plain to see that a burden had been lifted from their minds. The treasure has been gone for some time, continued Clayton. In fact, the body fell apart as we lifted it, which indicates that whoever removed the treasure did so whilst the corpse was still fresh, for it was intact when we first uncovered it. There must have been several in the party, said Jane, who had joined them. You remember that it took four men to carry it. "'By Jove!' cried Clayton. "'That's right. It must have been done by a party of blacks. Probably one of them saw the men bury the chest, and then returned immediately after with a party of his friends and carried it off.' "'Speculation is futile,' said Professor Porter sadly. "'The chest is gone. We shall never see it again, nor the treasure that was in it.' Only Jane knew what the loss meant to her father, and none there knew what it meant to her. Six days later, Captain Dufronet announced that they would sail early on the morrow. Jane would have begged for a further reprieve, had it not been that she too had begun to believe that her forest lover would return no more. In spite of herself, she began to entertain doubts and fears. The reasonableness of the arguments of those disinterested French officers commenced to convince her against her will. That he was a cannibal she would not believe, but that he was an adopted member of some savage tribe at length seemed possible to her. She would not admit that he could be dead. It was impossible to believe that the perfect body, so filled with triumphant life, could ever cease to harbour the vital spark, as soon believed that immortality were dust. As Jane permitted herself to harbour these thoughts, others, equally unwelcome, forced themselves upon her. If he belonged to some savage tribe, he had a savage wife, a dozen of them perhaps, and wild half-caste children. The girl shuddered, and when they told her that the cruiser would sail on the morrow— she was almost glad. It was she, though, who suggested that arms, ammunition, supplies, and comforts be left behind in the cabin, ostensibly that the intangible personality who had signed himself Tarzan of the Apes, and for dare not, should he still be living. But really, she hoped for her forest god, even though his feet should prove of clay. At the last minute, she left a message for him, to be transmitted by Tarzan of the Apes. She was the last to leave the cabin, returning on some trivial pretext after the others had started for the boat. She kneeled down beside the bed in which she had spent so many nights, and offered up a prayer for the safety of her primeval man, and, crushing his locket to her lips, she murmured, "'I love you, and because I love you I believe in you. But if I did not believe, still I should love. Had you come back for me, and had there been no other way, I would have gone into the jungle with you, forever.' All right. Thanks so much for listening today, guys. Really appreciate you sharing the podcast with somebody who you know that might enjoy a free audiobook. And remember, you can find the full unabridged audiobooks if you want to support the podcast. They're all over. Anywhere that you find audiobooks, you can find Another World audiobooks narrated by me. If you enjoy how I narrate stuff, then uh, go ahead and check them out. It's a great way to support the podcast. You can purchase the full unabridged audiobook. You can just listen to them here. Or you can go check them out on YouTube, youtube.com, and uh, just search Another World audiobooks to channel pops right up. 
Still keep my eye out if anybody is interested in helping me edit the podcast. I would love to hear from you. Uh, if so, hit me up, anotherworldaudiobooks at gmail.com. Uh, otherwise, I will uh, talk to you guys in the next episode. Don't worry, you aren't the only one. You aren't the only business that needs help. You aren't the only person that has a hard time finding the right help at the right price. This is where Business Bloodline becomes your bloodline to temporary and permanent staffing. Business Bloodline specializes in hiring internet workers to creatively solve problems for your business. Business Bloodline does all the vetting and only delivers candidates that make sense for your needs and at a cost that you can afford. But 60 seconds isn't enough for me to tell you why hiring through Business Bloodline is safer, cheaper, and less time consuming. We would rather show you. To get more information or a business consultation, visit businessbloodline.com. If the job can be done on a computer, Business Bloodline can find a match. Visit businessbloodline.com and tell them that you heard about it on Another World Audiobooks to get 10% off your first hire. Remember to mention that you heard about it on Another World Audiobooks to get that 10% off. Businessbloodline.com